That is a story worth telling. So be ready to share that good news. Matthew chapter 2. I want to finish this year out with a short series in finding joy. Finding joy in the nativity. But in order to find joy in the nativity, we should be clear about what nativity is. We use that word, uh, and typically we use it in a very particular definition, that being the picture or model of the circumstances of Christ's birth. That would be more properly called the holy nativity, uh, because nativity is the story of any birth. You have your nativity story, and moms will often share their nativity stories of their children being born. Nativity simply means the occasion of someone's birth. So we put that now in the context of the birth of Christ, and hence we have what we call the nativity proper, you know, the picture or the the model that sits on your mantle or your tabletop. We want to look at that scene of Christ's birth event and learn from the primary characters. If you have a nativity set or two or three in your home, then you have the sermon series sitting there on your tabletop or on the mantle. We're going to take the five primary characters and study them in the weeks to come. The purpose of this series, though, is to urge you toward joy. Whatever else you do this season, and there tends to be a little bit of a heightening of busy calendars and events, fine, as long as we are marked by the joy of the event of the Incarnation. So I'm urging you toward joy. In whatever else you do, do not lose joy. But the reality is, busyness often tends to work against joy. Even busyness for events that tend to make us happy can work against joy. And we start yanking our kids around and telling them to do this and this. Why? Because we're trying to get this event for joy. All right? Be careful. Be careful that joy isn't lost because of other things that may be good. There's plenty in our lives that can threaten joy. So when you read of news stories and you think of the, own, the conflicts in your own family, the burdens that you personally bear, be reminded that Jesus coming to earth on this mission of rescue is gospel. It is good news, which, as it spreads to all people, is announced as a message of great joy. Joy that abides despite poverty, despite lack, despite suffering or pain. We'll consider five sermons to urge us toward joy. Joy in what God has done in the incarnation of Jesus for the salvation of sinners. Five sermons, five main characters of the nativity scene 
to teach us these five lessons about finding joy. You've heard the text for this morning, so you know the first lesson is drawn from the account of the wise men, the magi as we call them. Here's our theme this morning. You should find joy in pursuing truth. May this season be joyful because your heart is bent on pursuing truth. Truth that helps you parent well. Truth that helps you be the right kind of spouse. Truth that enables you to comfort a friend in need. Truth that enables you to to post on your social media in ways that are edifying and hope-giving. Truth that enables you to think with your teenager through this cultural maze of confusion regarding sexuality and gender. Truth that helps you focus on a work ethic in the workplace that represents Christ well. Your pursuit of truth this season. Truth about the joy and satisfaction of Jesus that the prophet Isaiah said was like taking a drink of that cool, refreshing water when the only other option available to you before was this cracked and broken cistern with murky, algae-filled water. We have that fresh water to offer in this season. We have the hope of Christ and the satisfaction that is found in him. And many of you may have conversations this season in public places regarding the truth of Christ, his goodness, your satisfaction in him, to the backdrop of Christian Christmas songs playing over the loudspeakers in department stores. It's like the table is set for us to just add our vote of confidence in God's plan of redemption. So what does Matthew 2 show us about pursuing truth? Well, there's a lot in the story of wise men that we don't read in this text or any other text because the details that have become part of the nativity aren't details given to us in the text. We don't know that there were three, and we certainly don't know their names. We don't know if some of them were white and one of them were black. We just don't know those things, though that's how it's often presented to us. So we come to our text and want to know about these wise men and their coming to the king of the Jews. We want to know of their pursuit. That's the big picture that we're trying to take in. Here's what we begin to observe. Number one, God has revealed truth. God has revealed truth. That's the whole point of the incarnation. God is making something known. He is revealing more. Hebrews says in in days before and in various ways, God communicated to us, but now he has communicated to us through his Son. God is making himself known. He is revealing truth. 
And we have a couple of clues in our text that this revelation is happening in our story. In verse 2 there, we see that the wise men came looking for the king of the Jews. And in our minds, we naturally connect these dots thinking, a shining light in the sky, king of the Jews. How, How did they get those two things together? Well, think less about the star and more about what they said they were pursuing. The star is auxiliary. They were pursuing a king. Why, pray tell, are these men from the east who have been serving their king just fine along the way, why are they suddenly interested in a king in a country that is dominated by Rome? It's really no country at all. Being king of the Jews means very little. If we think historically, we realize there's a problem here. If we think this is one nationality simply inquiring about the king of another nationality. They are looking for the king of the Jews with a background of understanding of what that means. They've come with gifts, not to make political alliances, but to bow down and worship. When we take in this story, we realize God has revealed something of his truth to them so that they would pursue. They saw his star. That star is secondary to him. They want to find him. Again in verse 10, they saw the star. This revelation indicating pursuit. And in verse 12, we see that they are warned in a dream. God has revealed truth even in our story. But just notice how this truth, this revelation, kind of sits in the context of the story. Because the rest of the story is about kind of in the middle there. The beginning is they saw the star and begin pursuing. The end is they worship. And in the middle is Herod and his encounter with the wise men, with the scribes, sending the wise men to Bethlehem. And in this context we find it interesting that God has revealed his truth. He is speaking now through his son being revealed in the incarnation, the birth of Christ, and yet those details are coming to us side by side in the context of a story of a lie. Herod hears of this king and is troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. Herod's troubled because history tells us Herod was paranoid. Herod was terrified he was going to lose his position of power. We should find it quite easy to grasp that Herod would kill all the children under two years old when Herod killed his own sons so they wouldn't get his throne. So Herod is greatly troubled when he hears there's some talk of another king. He's going to find out who this is. And his wise men indicate that Micah was probably right. He's going to be born in Bethlehem, so he sends them to Bethlehem and tells them to search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship. Well, we know from the end of the chapter what Herod's worship looked like. It was worship of himself. 
at great cost to those families with children under two years of age. Herod's lie is a lie to promote himself and to to keep for himself what he desperately wants, position and power. So now we have this truth being revealed in this kind of almost mysterious way, this shining star that leads them to the Christ child. Truth is being revealed. It's unfolding. This child in the manger is God's plan of redemption. He is speaking to us through his son. And yet truth now from this story, really from Genesis 3 on, will always be seen on a backdrop of lies. God's truth in Genesis 3 was the seed of the woman will will be in conflict with the serpent always until someday way down the road when the seed of the woman would, would crush the serpent's head. The battle would rage, but a son is going to win over a serpent someday. But that truth comes to us only because of a lie that was believed in the garden. As the serpent deceives Adam and Eve. Truth and lie are always going to exist together until Christ returns. So recognize that truth revealed by God is truth which is opposed by lies. The devil will tell you that you can decide what is truth. And when you read of the, the nonsense, the confusion of transgender ideology, it's one thing to be confused in your mind and in your own feelings, and we can have compassion with, on someone who, who is confused and blinded by sin. But the folly is working itself out as these ideas are trying to work their way into legislation, and you see how nonsensical it is. How, how This is hard to articulate and put into any kind of universal practice. It's all built on a lie. Really the same lie of Eden. When the devil tells us, you know best. You know what's right. Do what's right for you. You be in charge. You make the call. You know good from evil. Truth will be opposed by lies. Jesus in his earthly ministry, as the light of the world is ridiculed and rejected and scorned. And an eventual showdown with the Pharisees, he tells them in this dispute over fatherhood, because they're still pointing back to this event and saying, you don't even know who your father is. You might be an illegitimate child. And Jesus shoots it straight with them and says, you're still of your father, the devil. And the lust of your father you will do. He was a murderer from the beginning and abode not in the truth because there's no truth in him. He's the father of lies. So there's only two options of thinking. It's only two options of worldviews. There is Christianity. What has God said is true. And there is every other worldview or religion that exists. 
There is truth and there is lies. Our story comes to us, truth. They come to worship the King of the Jews, the Son of God. And yet, racing alongside of their entourage is Herod's lie. No, that's what we're up against. It is truth opposed by lies, but it is also truth which, by indication of our text, is for all peoples. Think with a bit of a missions and outreach mindset here. And remember, these are not Jews that are hearing the gospel. They're coming to worship the king of the Jews. They know who this is. It's a reminder of what the prophet said, that the desire of the nations will come. One prophet said, God will whistle and the nations will bring their gifts. Much like you would call your children from a playground or call your dog in from the backyard, that signal is sent out. He's here. It's a gospel for all peoples. These Gentiles are included in the good news. But note also that these Gentiles happen to be rich and powerful. We often consider the alternative from Corinthians, not many wise, not many mighty are called. But don't think the gospel doesn't reach the wise and the mighty. Paul's argument in 1 Corinthians 1 is we have a simple message. We preach Christ and Him crucified. We don't need to convince and and manipulate, and, and we don't need the advantage of somebody really in a powerful position becoming a Christian because that would lend credibility to us. But don't think the gospel isn't for those who are rich and in powerful positions. We should pray all the more for them because riches bring a snare. Power brings a sense of security. I'll tear down my barns and build new ones. Why? Because I've got it all under control. I've taken care of myself. I don't need anything else. In this case, it's the rich and the powerful, the Gentiles, who are responding to God's revelation. And so we're right to pray for our missionaries and their missions efforts. We're right to pray for our nation's leaders and to imagine the the testimony of celebrity or politician renouncing the foolishness of their past decisions and acknowledging that from this point on, they're going to make decisions based on the word of God. Oh, they might get voted out of office and never see the the halls of Congress again, but we can rejoice in that. It's a truth for all peoples. And third, it's a truth which is traced throughout the Bible. I want you to realize from this story that God wanted his Messiah to be anticipated and then accepted. He had told us back in Numbers chapter 24 that a star would arise out of Jacob. He told us in Isaiah that a virgin would conceive and bear a son, and yet the religious leaders for the rest of Jesus' days wanted to nitpick at his virgin birth as illegitimate. Isaiah said to those who believe, that would be a sign, a confirmation. Daniel gave us a timeline, numbered in weeks, as he called them, in periods of seven years. And he said, when you add these up, you'll you'll know pretty close as to when this, this Messiah is going to come. 
Micah told us to keep an eye on Bethlehem. For a shepherd ruler would come out of Bethlehem. Malachi told us that we would be able to see the ministry of the Messiah unfold when we see the ministry of this bizarre character, this this one who would prepare the way, the forerunner. God wanted his Messiah anticipated. And so he gave us an Old Testament to create longings for a perfect priest, a perfect prophet, a perfect king, a perfect sacrifice. Everything in the Old Testament is designed to make us wait and anticipate. So the Bible hasn't been silent about this coming Messiah. And the Bible was there in its Old Testament law and prophets and history for these wise men to see. When we think of these wise men coming from the east, we realize that would be one of the hot spots of of knowledge. Scrolls kept there. Wisdom and learning was seated there as it would be in, in Egypt and a few other places. Historically, these wise men the Greek word is where we get the the term magi, are an elite class of princes and rulers. Persian roots, but even then the Chaldeans into the Medo-Persian Empire, that, that heritage lingers there in what we think of as originally Babylon. These men dominated society in, in their religious clout. Granted, some of that was sorcery, astronomy, blended with astrology. They were known as the medicine men of the day. They would divine the spirits, interpret dreams. Because of all that mystical stuff, we get our word magic from this Greek word magi. Because who were they? They were these men of learning who dabbled with all kinds of things that were above the common people and thus were entrusted to kind of have all the answers, the mystical, spiritual answers. But they also dominated society with political clout. They were seen as experts in all fields, science, law, philosophy, medicine. Their teaching became the basis of what we read in scriptures, the law of the Medes and Persians. When you read of Esther's account, you you hear that language. That came from these powerful political players of the day. We still use the word magistrate because of these wise men, the magi. They were the political movers and shakers of the day. In their day, they were known as king makers. Oh, if you're a student of politics today, you know, you still see how a candidate gets to be, you know, nominated for his party's candidate. It's usually not because he has great ideas. Hate to break it to you. No lengthy debates like Lincoln and Douglas with with deep philosophical concepts. No, it's usually a web of connection and power players working behind the scenes to make things happen. Those power players are what we call the wise men. They were king makers. You sat on a throne in many cases because you had won the favor of the magi. 
It's interesting that even in the Old Testament, we hear language of the Magi in one verse. Jeremiah 39.3 mentions a name and a title. The name you probably don't remember, Nergal Sher Ezer. But then his title is given, the Rob Mag. Rob mean the great or high. So the chief of the Magi, the chief Mag, he was called. So Nergal Shar Ezer, the Rob Mag, Jeremiah 39. We're told about one of the Magi. But the most notable kingmaker or Magi of biblical record, he studied the knowledge of the day. He interpreted dreams. He ruled over the other Magi. He influenced the king and thereby influenced a kingdom. Now we know him less as one of Babylon's magi and more for having spent a night in the lion's den, having interpreted a dream for a king, having seen handwriting on the wall and been called to interpret that. Daniel was a kingmaker, one of the magi. In Daniel 5, after that handwriting appears on the wall and nobody can interpret it, the queen tells the king, get Daniel. Sounds like Daniel was kind of in retirement, but he was known as the one person who could solve the puzzle on the wall. And she said, there is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. In the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, astrologers, because an excellent spirit, knowledge, and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems were found in this Daniel. The queen was the biggest fan of Daniel. She says, hey, remember the chief magi of the past? Your Father's Day, Daniel, get him. He can tell you what this means. So these magi in Matthew 2, wise men, as we call them, have a historical and a biblical foundation to help us understand this wasn't just three guys on camels loaded with riches. This was likely an entourage, dozens if not hundreds of people traveling with the kingmakers of their day, armies to protect them. And so when Herod sees them coming, he's afraid when he hears they're looking for a king other than him. And all Jerusalem is concerned because we don't know who this army is and why they're here. But we do know from our text why they're here. Because God had made himself known. God had made himself known in revelation. These magi had truth, probably from Daniel's day. Maybe they could still talk about that legendary guy from a few hundred years before. Like we would talk of Paul Revere, or Spurgeon, or Martin Luther. Luther would be about the timetable. A few hundred years back, before this time, when they saw the sign of this blazing light, they knew that the truth of God's promised Messiah was coming to play. Second observation. 
Grace enables our pursuit of truth. Grace enables our pursuit of truth. Here's the question that we have to answer at this point. Were the wise men pursuing or was God leading? Were the wise men pursuing or was God leading? In the text, we see both. We see both the star of God's leading and we read about the journey of the Magi's following. Think about the star of God's leading. Verse 9, the star rose and went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was and they went into that house, the next verse says. This begs an obvious question. What is this star? Based on its reappearing, it's leading them as they leave Jerusalem and start heading to Bethlehem. They don't, know, they don't need to be led to Bethlehem. They were already told where Bethlehem is. And there's a trail and about five miles, a little bit further south and a little bit up the mountain, and that's Bethlehem. They know where it is. They don't need to be led there. They've been told. So what's going on with this star reappearing and leading them? And we're told it leads them to the very house. Based on the reappearing and leading to the right house or stable, I'm willing to rule out all theories of comets, planets, aligning planets, or even celestial stars. Like there's nothing natural about this in the sense of it was Venus and Jupiter aligning or it was some star that happened to shine brightly. Let's think this through because we've weeded out something way up in the heavens that is in its natural occurrence. This has to be some supernatural display or use of one of those celestial beings, stars, planet, glowing gas balls. And to bring one of them down to show exactly which house may be hard for us to explain scientifically. I would suggest we not try. So where does this leave us? Well, the Old Testament synonym for the word used here for star is simply shining, blazing. So what do we know in scriptures of blazing or shining light? Well, in Exodus 3, it's a burning bush where God reveals himself. In Exodus 13, it's a pillar of fire where God reveals himself. In Exodus 34, Moses' face is shining after being in God's partial presence where he revealed himself. In Luke 2, it's a light that terrorizes the shepherds as God reveals himself. In Matthew 17, it's the Mount of Transfiguration where Christ reveals himself in part. In Acts 9, it's Paul blinded by heavenly light as God reveals himself to a stubborn Pharisee. In John 1, it's John's vision of a figure who shines like the sun as God reveals himself. So I would suggest to you that this shining or blazing light of Matthew 2 seems to be most consistent with the brightness of God's Shekinah glory as he chooses to reveal himself, as he has done again and again in Old and New Testaments. Let's take all the mystery out 
and say that somehow God chose to sign a special light because of his consistent purpose of using blazing light in the revelation of his glory. If that was a particular star, then it was a star that didn't shine like it normally shines and has nothing to do with the study of astronomy, but rather a star that cast an incredibly precise light on the exact house where the wise men were to enter. Because that's how the text unfolds it. The star led them. They're moved with joy because now they knew which house to go into in verse 11 and which child thus to worship. In a sense, it's simplifying things. We want to we make it complicated and think, what, what is this incredible star and how did it work? And what if this is the 2,000th year of the alignment of those same stars, which we heard a few years ago? It's utter nonsense. There is no star you're looking at in the normal constellations of the heavens that is going to lead you to a house. So let's let this rest in the supernatural ability of God to shine his glory where he wants it to shine in order to make himself known. Then we can argue that's God's leading. They knew which house to enter. Clearly this passage is about the grace of God's leading. But we also see the Magi's following. They came to Jerusalem from the east. We're looking at four to five months, likely, of travel time, taking you know days off, but five days a week, covering a good bit of miles for a lot of weeks. They're following from the east to Jerusalem. Verse 2, they came to worship by following this star. Our point would be this. Is it God's leading or our following? And you know the answer, I think. It's, it's both. It's God's grace that enables our pursuit. God's grace enables our pursuit of the truth. We follow truth. We pursue it because God is at work in us. We hear this language in Psalm 119. I've been reading through this psalm weekly with another man, and I was struck by the thought that in Psalm 119, there's often the reality of the words doing something, but I'm doing something. It's the perfect picture of our sanctification, where The Spirit's fruit, His righteousness is being worked in us. Remember Philippians, it is God who is at work both to will and to do of His good pleasure. God's working in me. That's why you see good. And yet I yield myself to the Spirit so that I'm filled with the Spirit and demonstrate righteousness. So God's doing it, I'm doing it. It's both in sanctification. I obey, but when I look at my obedience real closely, I see that there's grace there. That's the work of God in me. And so it is here. Wise men are pursuing, but they would have to attribute that to the grace of God in leading them. Listen to Psalm 119. I just grabbed one of the sections, 33 to 40. Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes and I will keep it to the end. 
So I'm responsible to keep the statutes to the end. You're responsible to teach me. It's both. Give me understanding that I may keep your law and observe it with all my heart. I'm not passive in receiving understanding. I'm observing it with all my heart. Lead me in the path of your commandments for I delight in it. I delight and therefore God leads. Incline my heart to your testimonies. Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things. Confirm to your servant your promise that you may be feared. I'll fear you. You confirm your promises. It's both. This journey of our pursuit of truth shows us that God's grace is enabling our obedience, our desire, our passion, our pursuit. God's promise to us is grace that enables us to pursue truth. But God's command to us, and thus our responsibility, is to do the pursuing. These wise men pursued the truth, but it was the grace of God at work in their lives. So God reveals truth. His grace enables us to pursue it. Number three, in our pursuit of truth, God will be glorified and we will find joy. So we come back to our text. We see in verse 11, and going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Here are these expressions of worship. We've thought through their gifts in past years. Here, just, just take in the whole scene. They're falling down and worshiping. And it's not somebody who's comprehending fully what's going on. This is an infant in, her, in his mother's arms or lying in a stable, a trough. They're worshiping. They know the value of this promised gift of God. God is glorified when we see his value, his worth. Oh, we may not esteem that worth or value fully or rightly, but every time we see God as valuable, he's glorified. If you're looking for trying to figure out what does it mean to glorify God, you're, you're analyzing, you're telling others about his value, his worth. We might say that in the language of thanksgiving, the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever. So when you talk about God being good to someone, you're, you're letting them know you think God is valuable, that he is worthy of our worship. Here these men considered the Christ child valuable. They worshipped him. They esteemed him as one who had worth. They opened their treasures and offered him gifts. The pursuit of truth led to the glory of God. If you, if you pursue truth, if you take this season and say, I want to, to know Christ more, 
it will inevitably result in God being glorified. You will see more of his plan. You'll see what he meant by this passage. You'll see what he means by this promise. You'll see why you can have hope and what you're waiting for someday. All of that will come into play and you will see God is worth trusting. He's worth praising. He's worth giving to. He's worth living for. The pursuit of truth will end in the glory of God. And yet God has also designed the pursuit of truth to result in our joy. Verse 10 gives us probably the most concise and yet loaded expression of joy in the scriptures. When they saw the star, it says in verse 10, they rejoiced. And then we add one of these hyper kind of words to make it more intense. They enjoy, rejoiced exceedingly. All right, point taken. Nope, not done yet. They rejoiced exceedingly with what? With joy. And not only did they rejoice exceedingly with joy, but they rejoiced exceedingly with what kind of joy? Great joy. You write this in your English paper, and the teacher's going to scratch a couple of words and say, listen, let the words mean something. If you use exceedingly, let that carry its weight and don't put things like really, 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 or very, very, very great. Let words speak. Matthew, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, put them all in there. To let it feel redundant and yet let it capture how excited these guys were. They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Why? Simply because a four or five month journey was finally coming to an end? Oh, that could be great joy, but I don't know about rejoicing exceedingly with great joy. There has to be something more. And we see the more in the next verse. We just read them backwards. The rejoicing was all about the value, the treasure of what was being found. And they worshiped. Ours is joy. God's is the glory. You know, with so little that we're told about heaven, we can tend to think, you know, what, what are we going to do all the time? Like, my voice can only hold on for so long singing worship songs, right? Like, how, how, how is heaven just perpetual praise or what, what goes on? Well, just learn from these verses that pure worship is always joined with pure joy. So whatever heaven is, you're going to be in verse 10, rejoicing exceedingly with great joy. Because Psalm 16 tells us that when we're finally in his presence, we will finally realize the fullness of joy. Well, we'll... Like, I live with my spouse or my family, or what's that going to be like? Because we're not married, and I don't know, but don't worry about it. You won't lack anything. There will be nothing in heaven that you think, you know, back on earth, it was really cool that we got to, nope, you're not going to do that. That would be as foolish as the Israelites saying, you know, when we were back in Egypt, things were really great. No, we're just not going to do that. Fullness of joy when we know the fullness of worship. 
The task now is to try to, by faith, make these work. To know that if I pursue truth, God is glorified because he's the one that gave the truth. So I'm seeing more of him and his ideas and agreeing with him that they're good ideas, especially this salvation of sinners. But I'm also realizing it is a path of joy. It, It might be labeled the worship of the living God. What is the chief end of man? To glorify God forever. But there's also the enjoyment of God. There is the joy that knowing him and serving him brings now. So Christmas, Advent, Incarnation, God sending his son for us, that is indeed a good message of great joy. So let's pursue truth. That's what we learned from the wise men, to pursue truth. And if you look at your outline, there's one last twist. The truth that God was revealing in this text is the very person of Jesus Christ. So on your outline, you can substitute the word truth for the word Christ. And then we have our conclusion. God has revealed Christ. Grace enables us to pursue Christ. And in our pursuit of Christ, God is glorified. And we find joy. So this season, and and right on into the new year, let us find joy in pursuing Christ. Heavenly Father, thank you for familiar characters and a familiar story. Make us more familiar with this path of pursuing truth. May it not be that this week would would race by day by day, event by event, meeting after meeting, project after project, problem after problem, and we would gather again next Sunday having made no intentional effort to know the treasure of Christ more. No quiet moment of personal worship. May this not be true of us. Having seen the pursuit of truth in the lives of these wise men, may we, by grace, exercise ourselves in a pursuit of knowing Christ, of imitating Christ, of making him known. So help us in this season to keep our priorities right, to keep Christ at the center of our desire and as the hope of our satisfaction. And having done that, let us sit back and enjoy the host of blessings that you give us as your people and keep us thankful. For really, we move from the season of Thanksgiving into the season of Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving for the bounty of good things we enjoy to the thanksgiving for the good gift of Jesus and the salvation that we find in him. There's one here today who has never encountered the Christ of Christmas, the Christ of this incarnation, the Christ of the nativity. Would you open their eyes in your mercy so that they could treasure your son? 
We ask this in the name of your Son, Jesus, our Savior and our Lord. Amen.